Everybody, welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the last chapter of By Searching by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International. And we are reading chapter 13, Let Us Go On. It was the spring of 1928 when the China director of the China Inland Mission, the Reverend George Gibb, paid a visit to Vancouver. I was called in to meet him and well remember the searching look of concern he gave me. My dear girl, he said, you look worn out. Are you well enough to go to China? Oh, yes. Physically, I'm sound, but I'm very tired, I admitted. Our home on the north side was so far from the evening church appointments. Late at night, the ferry did not run so frequently, and if I missed one, there was a long wait before the next one. Often it was midnight before I got to bed, and six o'clock was my rising hour if I was to have a quiet time, get the house chores done, and catch the nine o'clock ferry. But I think most of it was emotional fatigue. Mentally, I knew the way of victory. I had read Hudson Taylor's experience, The Exchange Life, when he rolled all his burdens on the Lord. I had heard Keswick teaching expounded the furs and had seen it lived in life there. But how to transmute into experience was beyond me. I secretly worried about things. My father's attitude towards business appalled me. Where would he end up? Now I knew what my mother's secret trial had been and how much we all owed to her sound judgment and carefulness. I worried about my own failure at the corner club. I did not have the gift of evangelism. Young lives were constantly being cleansed and rededicated and built up in him. But I did not see that. I looked just for souls to take the initial step of salvation. Pentecostal girls were urging me to seek the baptism of the Spirit. One of them was a gifted evangelist, a golden-haired, angel-faced girl, and I fell into the snare of comparing myself with others. Peggy had something I didn't. Was it really speaking in tongues? Inwardly, I fretted, but the Lord was carefully holding me. I asked Peggy and Dorothy, another girl who kept at me, to describe what happens when they were filled with the Spirit. Their most vivid descriptions were no more than what I myself had experienced when alone with the Lord, and the awareness of his presence would flood in. I had never spoken in tongues, but I seemed to have had everything else that they claimed to have experienced. This kept me from going off into doctrinal extremes. I always felt there was a peril in seeking an experience from God. The temptation to think that the experience had sanctified, it hasn't. These uplifting times in his presence, provings of his faithful care, enrich us and add to our joy, but they do not sanctify us. They do not make us stronger Christians. They do not make us holier than our fellows, as I was to learn to my shame. But they do make us richer in the knowledge of him, and they give us joy that addeth no sorrow to it. The only way to be holy is daily to hand over to the Holy Spirit what Dr. Tozier calls the hyphenated sins of human spirit. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of other like them, which can be removed only in the spiritual experience, never by mere instruction, as well as try to instruct leprosy out of our system. There must be a work of God in destruction before we are free. We must invite the cross to do its deadly work within us. We must bring our self-sins to the cross for judgment. The Holy Spirit will crucify these things for us as we hand them over to him. We must accept the suffering involved, rejoicing in the knowledge that his resurrection life will be the final outcome. So with all my rich experience of answered prayers, I was still full of worry, self-pity, and many other ugly things but I was not acutely conscious they were there. Mr. Gibbs was really perturbed. 
By now I wore an engagement ring and John Kuhn was already in China and being used of the Lord there. If my health broke, that would bring John home. Mr. Gibbs consulted Mr. Thompson, and they both ordered me to resign from the corner club and take six months of complete rest before sailing in October 1928. Mr. Gibb intended to give instruction that I would be put on mission support in order to do this. But, most unusual for him, he must have forgotten. I waited and waited, but the mission sent nothing. I felt I should not petition them for it. Hudson Taylor would have just prayed. I forgot how it happened, but Mr. and Mrs. Whipple heard of the order for me to rest and invited me to spend the five or six months at the Furs. I could help in cleaning cabins and get the conference grounds ready, but first I was to have a full month of nothing but rest, even breakfast in bed. I had been able to save no money, for I had felt I should pay my father's debts. It was clear to me that the next invention would never bring him an income, and I was right. So I landed at the Furs with about $36, all the money I had left. No one can know what it meant to me to be taken in by dear, cheery Mrs. Whipple and be given the upstairs porch where they were fixing up as a bedroom for their own daughter, Lois, when she should return from the Bible Institute of Los Angeles where she was studying. Two sides of the room were without a full walls, and the scented tall fir trees were its screen. Mrs. Whipple had procured some old cement sacks, and there she had bleached, stenciled a pretty fleur-de-lis pattern on them and hung them in the lieu of walls. When the opening of the conference would bring many people around and the fir trees might not afford privacy enough, these curtains could be drawn. But when I arrived, the scented green needles were the wall, and I loved it. To wake up in the morning having slept to the full, no pressure schedule upon me. To hear the birds caroling and the suns trying to peek at me through the green fold, it was like living with God in Eden. I can never forget it. I knew the Whipples were living by faith but I had no idea that when they took me in that first night, they were down to rock bottom financially. I felt I'd have to give them my $36. Before going to bed, I handed the money to her, saying, I want you to take this. It won't pay for all that I'll eat these months, but I'll feel happier if I felt I'd given something. I remember Mrs. Whipple flushed a bit and tried to refuse, but I insisted. Then the matter left my mind. She told me years afterwards that it was one of the hardest things she ever did to take my money. But the milk bill was due in the morning, and she had nothing else with which to meet it, and I would need milk. My money fed us until a gift of $60 came in, and from then on there was no shortage. This is just a glimpse of how the Whipples lived. Although the gifts had been few, they did not hesitate to invite me to live with them for six months. And I do not need to say how God blessed them. They had returned from China to find that the Furs was the only home they had. With funds low and the need to make and furnish a bedroom for Lewis and me, they were put on their metal. From the attic of a relative, they obtained some old furniture free. This they sandpapered and repainted a pretty color for Lois's bedroom. And when the stencil curtains were hung, it was as dainty a room as any girl could wish. And I had learned lots about how to convert old things into new. The conference that summer in 1928 was the most blessed I'd ever known. The special speaker was Dr. Arthur Harris of Wales, and the Spirit of the Lord was powerfully among us. For one thing, Mrs. Whipple had prayed that every young person attending the conference would yield to the Lord before going home. One evening during the service, she was impelled to go to the girls' dormitory. There she knelt by each bed, claiming for Christ the occupant of that bed. Needless to say, every evening there were decisions made. Towards the last evening, there were a few who still hung back from full surrender, so the staff called us leaders of the young people to pray all during the evening service. 
the Spirit of the Lord came down upon us as in apostolic times, and we all started to pray simultaneously out loud. I was not even conscious of the others. I was so lifted up into the Lord's presence and so burdened for the souls that were hanging back that it was not until the break came that I suddenly came down to earth and realized that we had all been praying aloud together. From the upper room where we prayed, down through the treetops, we could see the open-air auditorium. As we prayed, one after another, got up and went forward to surrender. The very last, a girl from whom I had little hope, has now been, for decades, a very faithful missionary on the foreign field. Very truly, it was the work of the Spirit of God. Conference over, I needed to go back to Vancouver and get my outfit ready for China. There were still no funds sent to me by the mission, but a love gift from my brother paid my fare home. When Murray saw Dad's invention was, was hardly going to make him rich, he had set out for getting a job. But where would the next money come from? To add to the perplexity came a letter from Marjorie Harrison saying she was traveling in our parts and would like to stop off and see us. When I answered with a cordial invitation, I did not have enough money to pay for her car fare from the station to our home, let alone feed her. Then I got a call from Mr. Thompson to come to his office. There was some money waiting for me. At last, I said jubilee to myself, Mr. Gibb had remembered his promise. But it was no such thing. For it was much more wonderful than that. It was $50 from my own dear John in China. I think it was the remainder of a bank account he had left open from his earnings in preparation for Bible school days. I want to have a share in your outfit, he wrote. But it has no strings on it. You may use it for any need. The first bit fed Marjorie. From then on, I had no difficulty. The corner club girls gave me showers and beautiful outfit, which included the money to buy a portable organ. That little organ went with us to the Siwin Mountains and brought much joy to the Lisu, as well as to us missionaries for many years. I prayed much about my final message at the corner club. I did not know, though I shrewdly suspected it, that some of these dear girls were going to prove prayer warriors for whom I would thank the Lord all my missionary days. It has been so now for 28 years. God laid on my heart a message for myself as well as for them from Hebrews 6, 1. Let us go on. The search is not ended. We have only begun to explore our eternal, unfathomable God. Let us leave behind the elementary teaching about Christ and go forward to adult understanding. Let us not lay over and over again the foundations of truth. No, if God allows, let us go on, paraphrases Phillips. And that was the burden of my message. On October the 11th, 1928, I sailed for China. There was quite a large party of us, one being one little American girl who roomed next to me in Ransom Hall at Moody Bible Institute. Ella Deacons was engaged to Jack Graham, and we were to be roommates at the language school in China. My father had permission to sail with me on our steamer as far as Victoria, so the emotion of parting from him did not take place at the wharf in Vancouver. The ship was due to part out about noon, and the corner club girls forsook their lunch and flocked down to the wharf. They made such a crowd that a stranger asked my brother, Who's the girl who's getting all this send-off? Just an unknown missionary going out for the first time was certainly not the answer expected. But God can give special things to his unknown children when he wants to. At last, a bugler climbed up to the highest bridge of the Empress of Russia and began to play the Queen's beautiful farewell song, Aloha It is, of course, the sad parting of two lovers. It breathes passion but no senitude of hope. 
It is Earth doing its best to reach out for cheer, but failing mournfully. I'm so glad the Christian words have been set to that music for such moments. Only Christians dare to say, we never part for the last time. As the bugle notes poured forth on the noisy air of the wharf, there gradually grew a stillness over the crowd. In these closing days of time, what peace this glorious thought affords, that soon, O wondrous truth sublime, he shall come, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming soon, he's coming soon, with joy we'll welcome his returning. It may be morn, it may be night or noon, but oh, he's coming soon. But the gospel must first be published among all the nations. Mark 13.10 And we who living yet remain, caught up shall meet our faithful Lord. This hope we cherish not in vain, but we comfort one another with this word. The last notes quivered sadly on the high air. The unbelieving crowd, gasping, the only best they knew, whispered, Aloha, oi. The big anchors rattled as they pulled up. The paper streamers began to tear as the mighty ship slowly drew away from the wharf. Beloved girls' faces were working with emotion, and one and two were crying. Lord, I whispered, give me a last word they won't forget. A throne voice could still reach the wharf. I leaned over the side and called out slowly, Let us go on. The light of heaven broke through the tears of earth on some faces, so I knew they had heard. They waved their hands in a signal of assent, and the Empress of Russia turned her stately head slowly towards the Narrows, Puget Sound, the Pacific Ocean, and China. But there was one more step. At the city of Victoria on Vancouver Island, my father said goodbye and disembarked. After he left, the purser brought me a telegram. It read simply, We will go on, your corner club girls. Tears of gratitude rained in my heart. Twenty-eight years have passed, a good, long testing period. The corner club is still operating. Most of those girls have gone on with the Lord. There are people in more than one country of the world who rise up and call some of them blessed. One of them on the wharf that day had unconsciously been leaning on me rather than on the Lord himself. So she sprawled spiritually when her human prop was removed. But on the whole, they kept their promise. And now, as reader and author part, I can put no better words to use than these same. Let us go on. Go on searching and exploring the greatness and the dearness of our God. He has no favorites. He has said, you shall find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29:13. Notice that last phrase, for it is the only condition. There must be an inner honesty and undivided loyalty. That is the only stipulation. The man who trusts God, but with inward reservations, is like the wave of the sea, carried forward by the wind one moment and driven back the next. That sort of man cannot hope to receive anything from God. And the life of a man of divided loyalty will reveal instability at every turn. James 1, 6-8 But he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Said Susanna Wesley, He is so infinitely blessed that every perception of his blessed present imparts a gladness to the heart. Every degree of approach to him is, in the same proportion, a degree of happiness. So, let us go on searching. 
that is the end of the book. I don't know about you, but that book has really been a blessing to me and given me a lot of things to think about and to pray about and just to seek God's face. Next time we are going to be continuing in one of her other books that's going to give you a little bit more of her life in China, and the book will be in the arena. To God be all the glory. I love you. I'm praying for you. Bye-bye for now.